morning. You know, every day that we wake up is a blessing from the Lord, but every Lord's Day that we wake up is a particularly special blessing. We get to wake up, come together, and worship our God here as a people, as a local body of believers committed to one another. And for those of you, this is a good place to kind of put in a plug for our membership classes, membership application. For those of you who maybe did not, were not able to come to the last membership set of uh, membership classes, we would ask that if you're interested, you come and speak with us, and there will be more membership classes coming up in the next few months. And so we just, uh, we just encourage you, if you're interested in membership, to, to take that seriously. Uh, it's an important aspect of our church where you kind of become a sheep and you put yourself in the care of shepherds and you put yourself in community with one another. So we would encourage you to do that. If you've already done the first membership class, uh, we would ask that you go ahead and get in those membership applications as soon as you can. That way we can collect those, get that together, move that forward so that we can move on for the next member set of membership classes. Uh, I've noticed that just about all of, well, actually both weeks, uh, the last two weeks that we've, we've been focused on marriage, last two sermons we focused on marriage, the, uh, the John Piper books have just disappeared after, after the service. That's good. I'm, I'm excited about that. That's a, that's a very helpful book for married couples. And it's short. It's readable. It's a little different uh, than the theology of the family that you saw out there with the plastic wrapped around it, that massive tome. That may be a little intimidating, but This Momentary Marriage by John Piper is pretty short, and I think it will be very edifying to you. Some of you have already, uh, I hope, discovered the riches of that book. And it's not the book, it's his, it's his handling of God's Word. That's ultimately what, what uh, makes it special. And in that book, so Will, I'll say this, Will purchased a number of them. I think we have 10 out there, so I'll be curious to see if they disappear today. We'll see. Uh, but in his treatment of husbands as he comes to that specific topic, he quotes, he gives a quote from Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was a pastor in Germany, uh, ultimately put to death by the Nazis. And this is a quote from his letters and papers from prison. As the head, it is he, speaking of the husband, who is responsible for his wife, for their marriage, and for their home. On him falls the care and protection of the family. He represents it to the outside world. He is its mainstay and comfort. He is the master of the house who exhorts, punishes, helps, and comforts, and stands for it before God. It is a good thing. For it is a divine ordinance when the wife honors the husband for his office's sake and when the husband properly performs the duties of his office. We've been engaged in a series now for four weeks uh, entitled My Family for His Glory. In the first two weeks of this series, we just looked at the foundation stones for families where we went and looked at the context of Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 to 6-4, which is the passage that this series is based upon. And so those first two sermons, we just tried to understand from the context of Ephesians 5, 22 and following, what are the foundation stones for a healthy, godly, God-glorifying marriage and family and home. And so the last two weeks, we've, looked, we've kind of entered into these verses, the specific uh, instructions that we find in the passage, and the last two sermons were focused on a wife's submission. And so here's what I imagine probably happened, and probably is still happening, 
So some of you guys, perhaps, hopefully not, but undoubtedly so, some of you guys left here a little bit more smug and a little bit more critical than when you came in. Maybe not after the first sermon, but perhaps after the second. A little more smug and a little more critical as a husband. And I just want to say this first before we kind of go down that road at all. I want to say that being head is not about privilege. You can't read this passage and see privilege. Being head is about a weighty responsibility. It's about a burden. So it's not something to gloat about. It's something to wear. It's something to bear underneath. It is something to carry as Christ carried the church. No one will read through the Gospels and think that the things that Jesus endured during his earthly life and ultimately at the cross what was, was some sort of comfortable, sit-back, Mary Poppins kind of a father-husband figure sitting back just sort of reaping the benefits of his castle, his domain, that image of the father and the husband. None of that is what we would glean from the Gospels, from the description of Jesus who is head of the church, who came for his bride. So smugness and being critical have no place for the husband who wants to engage faithfully with these words from God. The marriage and the home rises or falls with the husband. That's another preliminary thing that I think needs to be said. The marriage and the home, your, your children, everything about the infrastructure of your, of your home, of your family, rises or falls with you. Now this is discouraging to wives who are frustrated with their husbands. Because as I say that, you say, perhaps, my home is destined to fall. Because you're so frustrated with your husband. Maybe that's you. But I would say this, that God gives much grace through praying wives. God can do much if you hear that comment as a wife and you're discouraged because you think, my husband's headed nowhere, nowhere good. Then be encouraged by the fact that even in your husband's failures, God gives much grace through your prayers and through your efforts. But it is the case, wives, all the more reason to pray. It is the case that your family rises or falls with your husband's carrying out of his role. So men, this is serious. This is more serious than our jobs. It's more serious than anything that we pursue in this life. This is ground zero for every man who has a wife, who has a home. Their lives are dependent upon us. Now, one of the things that I would say just generally as we, as we go through this study is that, and this is oftentimes the first thing that you find couples don't do when they sort of enter into marriage counseling or when they're talking with a friend and having trouble in their marriage. The first thing, almost always, that you find is the wife begins to point her finger at her husband and the husband begins to point his finger back at his wife. And so there's this constant sort of thing going on, this constant looking at the other and criticizing them. And so a general piece of counsel that I would say just throw out there before we as we go through this entire study is this each person person should focus on his or her own obedience to God that's where it starts wives focusing on what it looks like to submit faithfully to her, to her husband 
for the sake of Christ. Husbands, asking what does it look like for me to be faithful in being ahead of my home, regardless of what my wife is doing, out of obedience to Christ. So it's about looking inward rather than looking outward. It's not about picking apart each other's weaknesses and failures. Because here's the thing. All of us, those who are Christians, those who are part of the body of Christ, are saved by grace through faith and are being conformed into the image of Christ. So not a single person in this room is conformed to the image of Christ. That will happen one day when, when Christ raises our bodies and in body and soul together united we are glorified, made perfectly like him in our bodies without sin. That hasn't happened yet. And so every single husband and every single wife is being conformed to the image of Christ. So you will not have to search long and hard to find your spouse's failures. You won't. In fact... They're, 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 they're glaring us in the face always. That's, that's the way of it. Because we know each other better than anybody else. And so you will not have to look hard and long to find their failures, their weaknesses, and their sins. You won't. So we have to look inward. We have to focus on our own path to obedience. So today's sermon is entitled, A Husband's Headship. And this is just the first of uh, maybe two, two or three, at least two, maybe three, uh, at least as much time on the husbands as we gave to the wives, perhaps a little bit more, uh, which would be fitting given the role of husbands as leaders. And we will be on this topic uh, at least for next week and, and maybe for the following. But uh, what, what I want to do to start off with is I just want to do a flyover view of this passage. We'll, we'll discuss this in, in just a little bit. But what I want to start with is just do a flyover view before we even read the passage. As we come to Ephesians chapter 5, verses 25 to 33, we kind of fly over it at jet speed. And we just kind of look down and see what's going on there. So if we, if we take that approach, or, or another way to think about it is if we just dip our toe in the passage from the front end, and we just begin to kind of see what this passage is going to show us, I think that we learn three things about headship, or three things that headship entails. And this is, these, these are pre-point points. So just, uh, just they're, they're not up there on the screen. But these are three things that headship for the husband entails. I'll say them briefly and explain them. A husband is a leader, a lover, and a lamp. He is a leader, a lover, and a lamp. As we fly over the text, we see those three things. Where are we getting these? Well, the first is that he is called the head. Just on a very basic level, he is called the head because he, he is related to Christ. Christ is the head of the church. He leads the church. The church follows him. And as the body follows the initiative, the direction of the head, so too does the wife follow the leadership of the husband. And so we discussed in uh, the previous sermon, the last sermon on a wife's submission, we discussed that, that a submissive wife follows. She's a willing follower of her husband. And that implies, obviously, that the husband is the leader. So everything, you need to see this, all of these things that we're going to look at, and I'll, I'll mention them in a moment, but all of the various details of the passage that we find about husbands are an expression, get this, of leadership. Every single one of them. Leadership is not one of the things required of a husband. It is all pervasive. It, it spills into, it, it, it just is in, it's, it's present in every aspect of a husband's activity towards his wife. He is always leading in everything that he does, in everything that he is. 
A husband is a leader. He is a lover. Where am I getting this from? Look at the verses. Look at the passage. We're just, once again, we're flying over. Chapter 5. Look at verse 25. This is the first verse. It's kind of, it's a sandwich, really. Verse 25. Husbands, what's the verb there? Love. Husbands, love your wives. And then look at verse 28, in the middle of the passage. In the same way, husbands should love their wives. And then at the end of the passage, verse 33. However, let each one of you love his wife. So whatever we're going to say about husbands towards their wives, a husband is a lover in the, in this, in the true sense of the word. He is a lover of his wife. He is a leader of his wife. He is a lover of his wife, which once again means that every one of these details will be an expression of love, just as they are expressions of leadership. And then finally, he is a lamp. He is a leader, he is a lover, and he is a lamp. Matthew chapter 5, verses 15 to 16 says this, People do not light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. It is the role of every Christian to make much of God. To make much of God's grace in Christ, specifically. It is the role of every Christian to glorify, to put on display, to, to, to hold up in splendor, to point to and make much of God and Jesus Christ, his son. That is what we all do. And that's what Jesus is referring to here is letting that light shine. No one takes a lamp and, and hides it away. You let that light shine out so that it lights up the room. A husband is a lamp. As husbands, we illuminate Christ's love for his bride the church. Now think about this for a moment. We talked last week about how their wives, the role of wives in marriage is to be a gospel witness. Because when she submits to her husband, she, she points to or, or pictures or images the relationship between Christ and the church. That redemptive relationship between Christ and the church. But what you need to see is this. The wife's role is ecclesiological. What I mean by that is the wife's role points to the church. The church's relationship between Christ and the church. The husband's role is Christological. Meaning that even more is it the case. Even more is at stake that husbands love their wives rightly. That husbands do what it is that God's word calls for. Because in doing that, Christ is clearly displayed. Christ is pointed to. Every time we love husbands, we, us, every time we love our wives as Christ loved the church, we put on clear display the truth that God's son left his father, came for his bride, died for his bride, and redeemed her in every conceivable way. So husbands, we have a tall, this is a tall order. There's a lot for us to do, but at the heart of it all, is that we are leaders, lovers, and we are lamps. So my prayer for us as we approach the passage and as we pray in a moment, my prayer for us is that we will embrace God's will for us as men. That we will not be indifferent or lazy or passive or oppressive, domineering, but that we will be the kind of husbands that God has called us to be. 
that we might make much of him in the world. Because that's what it's all about anyway, right? It's all about making much of God. These, these marriages are, are just what John Piper calls them. They're momentary. They're momentary. They're, they're fleeting, just as our lives. Our lives are, will, will be gone in a moment, which means all the relationships that we have in this world, gone in a moment. This life is so short and temporary. But everything we do for Christ, every time we glorify him, every time our deeds are seen before men, that our Father in heaven is glorified, every time that happens, we store up treasure for ourselves in heaven. And we glorify our eternal God, whom we will live with forever. So eternal, eternal significance is found in this material. This is not just practical so you can be happy, so we can be happy and have happy homes. This is eternally valuable and significant. So let's go to our passage, Ephesians chapter 5, starting in verse 25. We'll read through verse 33, although verse 33 is kind of like a concluding verse that ties everything together. <clears throat> verse 25, husbands... Love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. Because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself. And let the wife see that she respects her husband. I pointed this out a couple of weeks ago. But notice how much attention is given to wives. And how much attention is given to husbands. Even if you take those last three verses off. You still have double the amount of instruction to husbands than to wives. Now let me just say this before we pray. That would have been radical in Paul's day. Because women were seen as nothing. They were seen as property to be used and abused. As a man saw fit. But here we have from God's word in first century culture. In a culture very oppressive to women. In a culture very dismissive towards women. Where a greater weight of responsibility is placed on husbands towards their wives. Than is placed on wives towards their husbands. Just another indication that God's word is the same yesterday, today and tomorrow. And it is universally applicable at all times. Not just for that society, but for today, 21st century American society. Let's pray to the Lord. Our Heavenly Father, we are conscious always of your glory. And God, every time we open up your word, we're just confronted with how awesome you are, how worthy of worship you are God we just we bow on our knees before you in our hearts we prostrate ourselves before you this day and we come together as a people 
beholding you in all of your splendor and beholding your son, the, the great head, the great leader, the great lover, the great lamp who pointed in every way to his father in heaven who sent him for the sheep. God, we just praise you for Christ's glory. And we thank you that in his glory, as we look upon his glory, as, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians, that we, we are transformed from one degree of glory to another. And God, really, that's what we need today. Husbands need to see the glory of Christ. We need to see the glory of Christ that we might be transformed into his likeness and that we might love our wives as he loves his bride. Us, the church. God, would you be merciful today to us in this? Would you help us see your glory through your son? And God, would you convict and encourage, correct and instruct husbands? In Jesus' name, amen. First thing I want to say as we jump into these points, before we get into these and I mention them, is that much grace and wisdom are needed for all of us. But I want to make this point in particular for husbands who, have, who feel like you have failed. And that's going to be the case as we go through something like this. In fact, I've talked with a number of people about that. Let's say when we get to parents, when we get to Ephesians chapter 6, Verse 4, fathers, and it goes on to saying, let's say that you're, you're, you're older, you're, your children are grown. There's a temptation at that point to feel like I failed. I didn't do any of this. Or I didn't do this well, to feel that regret and that remorse. And, and that temptation is present throughout this entire study. Maybe you're tempted today to say, you know, I failed. I failed. My marriage has been going on for all these years, and I, and I have failed in this. My plea with you is to entrust the past into God's hands and move forward today, this afternoon, when we walk out of this church building, to move forward in obedience to God. And forget the past. Entrust it into His hands. There's too much life to live, even if today is our last day on this earth. There's too much life to live, too much, too much to do now than to worry about that. Entrust that into God's hands. Move forward as we are now with God's wisdom. Wisdom cr cries out in the streets. Anyone who will come and listen to me, Proverbs says. Let him come and drink. Let him come and listen. Let him come and I will tell him. I will instruct him. But he who laughs at me, who mocks me, who turns away from me, I will laugh at his ruin. That's what we get in the book of Proverbs. And so my prayer for us husbands is that we will not, we will not turn away from God's wisdom. We will not turn away from his rebuke from his correction, if the Holy Spirit of God convicts you today, repent, cry out to God for grace, and turn, turn in God's power, in God's grace. Let's turn away from sin to the living God and live faithfully according to his word and love our wives. It can change today. It doesn't have to be just another week of this. You can change today by God's grace. We can be different when we leave here today. So here are the things I want to look at. As we go through this passage, we're going to see that as a husband expresses himself as a leader, as a lover, and as a lamp, he does eight things that we find in this passage, just as we walk through it. At least eight things, but these are kind of the, some of the handles that we, can, that we can grab hold of as we walk through the passage. He destroys. That sounds kind of counterintuitive, but we'll discuss that. He destroys. He initiates. He perseveres. He protects, he disciples, he unites, he provides, and he treasures. And already, 
Husband, as I have this week repeatedly thought, we should be convicted already. Right? Already! We haven't said nothing about the details of this. These are the things that the Lord God demands of us men. This is what he asks us to be and to do. So let's look at the first one. The godly husband destroys. And here's the main thing that I want you to see. The God-glorifying husband, this leader, this lover, this lamp, is constantly engaged in the work of putting selfishness to death in his own life. That's, that's, that's the beginning. That's the starting point. He is a destroyer. The godly husband is a destroyer of selfishness. Look at Ephesians 5.25. And actually everything that we're going to... The, the reason these first three are bolded, those are the ones we're going to look at today. All of the rest we'll look at next week and perhaps the following week. But today we'll look at he destroys, he initiates, and he perseveres. And all of these come really from verse 25. So look at 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. I want you to focus on these words. Gave himself up for her. Gave himself up. There are two places in the Gospels in particular where we see Jesus being tempted to turn away from his bride and towards himself. Jesus is tempted to turn away from self-giving love towards selfishness. We see this, this genuine temptation in the life of Jesus on two occasions in particular. And so in the wilderness, Jesus is tempted by Satan, the Holy Spirit takes him out into the wilderness and he endures temptation by Satan like, like Israel had been in the wilderness and Israel did not endure temptation, but Christ did, true Israel, Christ did endure temptation and came out trusting in his Father's word. But I want to draw your attention to the final temptation. And here's what it says. Verse 8 to 10 of chapter 4. Again... The devil, this is Matthew, I don't think I mentioned that. Matthew 4, 8 to 10. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan. For it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. So that's one occasion where we see Jesus being tempted and I'll explain why this is the case in a moment. To turn away from self-giving love towards his bride, towards selfishness. We see this in the garden. Matthew 26, verses 38 to 39, in the garden of Gethsemane. What happens with Jesus? He is tempted greatly. This is his greatest hour of temptation. In fact, the temptation in the wilderness was just kind of a, a small-scale temptation in comparison with this. The night he is to be betrayed and arrested, and that next morning crucified. Then Jesus said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. So once again, we see that Jesus is under great fiery temptation. And the temptation is to turn away from self-giving love for his bride and to turn towards selfishness. But what is Christ's response to temptation in both cases? He did not turn towards self-gratification and he did not turn towards self-preservation. Instead, he turned towards the cross. 
On both of these occasions, he turned towards an excruciating death in which he would bear the wrath of God for sinners. He did, as we read in Ephesians 5, 25, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. He turned towards the cross in which he would display his love by giving up himself, by sacrificing himself for her, his bride, his church. And as Christ selflessly gave himself up for his bride, the church, so too does each husband give himself up for the needs, the desires, and the general well-being of his bride. This is what we're called to. This same kind of love. Look at verse 28. In the same way, husbands. In the same way, husbands. But before we explore what this self-sacrificial love looks like in practice, we'll talk about that in a moment. But before we do so, I want you to notice where this love is directed and where it comes from. This self-sacrificial love for your wife must ultimately be directed to God. And this goes back to the same point that we made for wives. Wives are to submit to their husbands as an act of worship. It's a worshipful activity. As it says in verse 22, what does it say? Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. As to the Lord. The same is true for husbands. The same is true for husbands. Husbands do this. They love their wives self-sacrificially as to the Lord. How do we know that? Well, in the wilderness, what does Jesus say? As he's on a mission to the cross to save his bride, whom he loves, what does he say? He says, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. That means that the ultimate reason that Jesus was doing what he was doing was because he loved his father in heaven. In other words, all of Jesus' obedience was first and foremost directed not to his bride, the church, but to his Father in heaven who sent him. And it is, it is the bride whom he loves for his Father's sake. We love our brides. We love our wives for Christ's sake. Also in the garden, not as I will... But as you will, as he goes to purchase his bride with his own blood, his focus is on obeying the will of his Father. Not as I will, Father, but as you will. And in Ephesians 5, 2, it says this, Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Christ's sacrifice on behalf of his bride was unto God the Father. And our self-sacrificial love, husbands, for our wives must be unto God. It must be unto God. Or the same bitterness, the same frustration, the same disillusionment that we talked about, the same storing up. What do we husbands do? When we, we, get, a, we, we get it in our minds, you know, I'm going to do this. I'm going to really lay down my life for my wife. I'm going I'm to serve her. And we'll talk about some of that in a moment. But I'm going I'm to just make everything about her. I'm going to put my emphasis on her and I'm going to put myself to death. But here's what we do. Almost inevitably, we begin to store that up. In our memory bank. We begin to store up in our minds all the things that we're doing to selflessly love our wives. And then we begin to think, she doesn't care. She doesn't care about all these things that I'm doing. Why, why, is, she not, why is she not paying attention? And that's what happens when we do it ultimately for her. We can't. We do it for the Lord. Which means that whether she thinks us or not, or whether she sees it or not, it doesn't matter. Because it is as to the Lord. The same is true of wives who submit to their husbands. So where does it come from, this self-sacrificial love? 
We need to go back to our foundation stones. We read a passage like this in 1 John. 1 John 3.16, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Now, remember when we came into this passage specifically referring to wives and husbands, we were told that everyone in the church should be filled with the Spirit. Not drunk with wine, but filled with the Spirit. And then we got all of these various things that being filled with the Spirit means. And the final one of those was submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And then we go to wives. And the way that wives submit to one another in this very general way, a very specific application of that is they submit to their husbands as head. And the way that a husband practices this, this, this submission in general is to love his wife self-sacrificially. It all begins with being attached to the church, being assured of Christ's love for us, and being attuned to the Holy Spirit. So it goes back to those foundation stones. We cannot love our wives in this way unless we are attached to Christ's body in which we are laying down ourselves for one another always and in which we are filled with the Spirit. You can't do this, husband. I can't do this. This requires God's spirit. Because only Christ can do this. He's perfect. And it's Christ's character that is inculcated and grown in us by his Holy Spirit. And so without being filled with the spirit, there's no hope for this. At all. So what does this look like for us husbands? What does it look like to destroy selfishness in our lives? I just want to look at three areas by asking three questions. Three, three ways that we can come in. So you could explore this. What does it look like to, for a husband to, to self-sacrificially love his wife? You could explore this all day. But I just want to look at three questions for us. Do you come home... Well, that's probably the first question. Do you come home? <laughs> I mean, but we'll talk about that too. Do you come home to be served... Or to serve? That's a basic question. But I, I, think it is, I think it is one that draws out much in us. Matthew 20, 28, Jesus said, The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Any husband who wants to love his, love his wife like Christ of the church must think in those terms. I did not come home to be served, but to serve and give up my life for my bride. That's what we say when we walk through the door. So the question, I think, is this. What is the attitude and disposition of your heart, husband, when you walk through the door of your home at the end of a workday? Are you immediately beginning to think about your hobbies, your dinner, your clothes being washed, your kind of sense of control over your environment because things are clean and tidy and comfortable for you? Are you automatically beginning to think about the things that you should be receiving from your wife, the ways in which I should be served? Or are we thinking, it's time to work. It's time to work. Husbands must come home to work. We must come home to work. That thing which is most important is present there. Not where we came from all day with our co-workers and wherever else. On the road, wherever it might be. A thing that is most precious to us. Most precious to who we are. We are told later in this, in this passage that our wives are one with ourselves. One with us. 
That tells us we don't come home just to give all of our leftovers, just throw ourselves on the floor as though we're just kind of done with the day. Now it's time to sit on the couch and watch TV and do whatever I want to do to fulfill my desires. That is a very ungodly way to be a husband. My prayer for myself and for all of us is that we will come home ready to work. Think about this for a moment. If your wife is fulfilling her role, she's tired too. Think about that. Proverbs 31. If your wife is a Proverbs 31 wife and you want her to be that, you want to encourage her and disciple her unto that, if she's that, she's been working all day too. So what is the thought? Where is this thought that we've been working all day as men and we come home and now it's time for me to flop down on the couch or sit down at the dinner table and have everything catered to me just at the right time, in the right way. And if it doesn't happen, I'm going to lodge my grievances. Make sure this gets better. There's much of that, I fear, in our homes. And so my prayer, and I hope your prayer will be that that will cease. I come back to the first point. Do you come home to be served or to serve? And the point I made at the beginning is, is, is true. Do you come home? Do you come home? How much of your day is spent in wasted time? How much of our days spent wasting away our time when we could be more efficient and more productive and more active and more laborious on behalf of our family? Think about it this way. When you take longer to do things throughout the day, when you force yourself through our own unproductivity, our own inefficiency, our own slackness and laziness throughout the day, when we do that, we rob away our wives and our children's time. Because at the end of the day, two things result. One, Either it's not done and you have to stay later and get it done. Or it's not done and you're forced to go home. But the whole time you're home, you're thinking about everything that you have to do. You're not present mentally with your kids. We're not present mentally with our wives. How can we be the kind of husbands that see into the hearts of our wives, as we'll talk about in a moment? How can we be that kind of husband if, if we're so unproductive and inefficient and, and, and unfocused and distracted during the day, we're not doing things as we ought to do, we're not laboring on behalf of our family, that when we come home at the end of the day, not only do our families get our leftovers and they get all of our demands, but they also get an absent, either in terms of the number of hours we're home or in terms of our mental presence. They get absence from us. This is perpetuating all across the world. But this is in our lives. Families rise or fall here. So that's the first question. Do you come home to be served or to serve? The second question that we should ask ourselves as husbands, do you engage in physical intimacy to be pleased or to please? I won't go into great detail here. But I will say this, physical intimacy that is not merely about our own sexual gratification is the kind of physical intimacy that we must practice with our wives. I mean, how frequent is it the case that when a husband thinks physical intimacy with my wife, it is immediately self-gratification. And there is no, no caressing, no holding, no kissing, no hugging. None of that that does not, hopefully at least, in the mind of us as husbands, lead to something that will satisfy that need or want. 
Do you engage in physical intimacy to be pleased or to please? That's a clear sign if you're dying to self or not. That's a clear sign for us all. Final question, do you communicate to be known or to know? Do you communicate to be known or to know? And Once again, do you communicate? I mean, that's the first question. Do we communicate with our wives? Do we, do we speak with them? Do we concern ourselves with what is in their heads? With what happened in their day? With the frustrations that may have piled up? Are we concerned with knowing them? With knowing them. This is the idea we get in Genesis chapter 2. The companion and the helper and the intimate relationship. The one flesh relationship. We'll go on to see the one flesh relationship says that our wives are not an, an, another. They are one with us. We are, we are united as one flesh. One body. But yet we don't know her. And then here I think is another way to think about communication. Do we submit our thoughts, our feelings, our desires, our dreams, and our rights to hers? Dying to self. What about our point of view? I mean, how often do we get in arguments, whether they're heated or minor? How often do we get in arguments and the objective is that you need to understand what I'm saying? You need to understand what I'm trying to get across. You need to understand what's in my head. You're not listening. Listen, listen. How often are we constantly focusing on our point of view? What it is we want to communicate. What it is that we have in mind about the situation. Dying to self as Christ put his life up and gave his life up for the church. Dying to self involves saying, I'm going to take her dreams, her desires, her needs, her point of view, her rights. I'm going to do this. Just like that. And so we talked about the husband being the head and the wife being the body and submitting to the head. Part of what it means for the husband to be the head is to, in all of these things, to do this. To submit ourselves to our wives in this way that we put their needs and desires above our own and we die to ourselves. Here's a quote from... John MacArthur, I shared this actually, I think it was the second week that I was here last June. Um, this was a, a, a quote that I shared when I preached on this passage from John 15, verses 12 to 13. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. And so one of the points I made was that Jesus was saying that in the way that we relate to one another in love, what we are doing is we are dying to ourselves. We're giving our lives up. And that's one of the reasons why uh, when you look at our purpose statement here as a church, we look at our vision statement, one of the points on there is that we are dying in community. What that means is that as a body of believers, we come to church, to, to this building, we meet together in the community, we meet together at our gospel community group homes, and we conscientiously, we consciously go to those meetings saying to ourselves, I am dying to myself. I am dying to myself. I'm looking to other people's needs. I'm looking to other people's wants. I'm looking to other people's concerns. I'm dying to myself now. And that's the way we want to move forward as a church. And that must be the way that we move forward as husbands. So I want to read this quote to you. It says this. 
for a little background, background music. When you are forgotten or neglected or purposely set aside and you sting and hurt with the insult and the oversight, but your heart is happy and you count it a privilege to suffer, that is dying to self. When your good is spoken of as evil, when you are misunderstood, when your desires are not interesting to others, when your advice is disregarded and your opinions are ridiculed, when you are abused and mistreated and you refuse to let anger rise in your heart or even defend yourself, that is dying to self. I don't know about you guys, but I have a long way to go on this. A long way to go. When you lovingly, patiently bear any disruption, any irregularity, any annoyance, when you stand face to face with folly, waste, extravagance, and insensitivity and endure it as Jesus endured it, that is dying to self. When you never care to refer to yourself in a conversation or to record and recite your own good works or pursue commendation, that is dying to self. When you can receive correction and reproof and humbly submit inwardly as well as outwardly and feel no rebellion and resentment, Rising in your heart, that is dying to self. And husbands, that's at the heart of our love for our wives. So Ephesians 5 tells us that being a good godly husband means that we die to self in an effort to serve, to please, and to know these precious ones whom God has given us, our wives. So that's the first. The second is... He initiates. The godly husband destroys selfishness and he initiates. The love and vitality of the marriage. This is something probably that is going to strike you as a little bit new, maybe, or odd. Especially in our church, in a kind of current church culture. Not this church, but just church-wide, universal church. The love and vitality of the marriage and the family begin with the husband. He must lead in love. He must be the initiator. One of the things that we typically think about, okay, even if the husband is checked in, even if the husband is leading, it's the wife who is responsible for kind of initiating and kind of moving the husband along to make sure that there is that heart connection between husband and wife. Wrong! That's not right! That's not right! What we get here is that it is the husband. Ephesians 5.25, it is Christ, the head, the leader, who loved the church and gave himself up for her. That's what Christ did. Just as we read in 1 John 4.19, we love because he first loved us. It is the love of God in Christ that precedes our love. It is not the church that initiated things with Christ. It is Christ who came pursuing his Bride. And by the way, this is very important as you think about the relationship between our theology and our practice. The initiative is with God. He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. In love, He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. We read at the very beginning of this book God took the initiative in choosing those whom He would save, those whom He would grace, and God's Son took the initiative in going to get them going to get us, coming to this earth to give up his life for us. He, Christ, our Lord, is the initiator. Any relationship that we have as the church or as individual members of the church with Christ is because of him. It's because he made it happen. So the godly husband initiates. Two applications for us here as we, as we kind of move right along. 
The first is, as husbands, we must take the initiative in, in ensuring the health of the marriage. Husband, how often do you think about the relationship you have with your wife? How often do you say to yourself, I wonder how we're doing? I wonder how we're doing. How often do you go to your wife and say, sweetheart, whatever you call her, what are, how are we doing? How are we doing? Are we doing okay? I mean, are things going all right? You know, do you feel, how do you feel about this? How do you feel, you know, I, I noticed we talked yesterday and that, we, that was kind of unresolved. How often do we even care about those sorts of things? In thought, in planning, do we plan date nights? Do we plan vacations? Do we plan weekends away? Do we think about what it would look like to cultivate a marriage? Because that's our job. That's not your wife's job. That's not my wife's job. That's our job. That's our responsibility to initiate and to initiate in action. The opposite, this is the opposite. I want you to see this. We need to see this because our culture is so perverse. This is the opposite of being passive, indifferent, and closed off. And that is the caricature of manhood. What an abomination to God. What an abomination to his Christ, whom we image, whom our lives are patterned after. Passive, indifferent, closed off. This is a godless, satanic perversion of what husbands are supposed to be. Be aware, husband. Be aware. We must be aware of the conflict. We must be aware that we are engaged always against the evil one, and we, we must be aware that there's a contrast between our world and those who are in Christ. It should not surprise us that the way husbands are portrayed in TV and movies and the way husbands are portrayed by those we know is wrong, is wrong. It is a satanic perversion of God's intended purpose. Here's a second application on this point. Where there is discord, the leader or initiator in reconciliation is the husband. Think about this for a moment. How often do we have a fight and you go your way and she goes her way and they're just, you know, maybe a door slams a little harder than it should over here and a door slams a little harder than it should over here and, and there's a little bit of separation at that point. How often do we say, well, how often do we just sit around waiting on our wives to come and make things better? That's ridiculous. That's not the role of a husband. The role of a husband is to step out in humble, once again, self-giving, in humble Christ-like reconciliation and to go and reconcile to yourself the one from whom you've been separated. That's the role of the husband, not the wife. Not the wife. You're the first to forgive. Ephesians 4.32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Who takes the initiative to reach out and to forgive? It's not the wife, it's the husband. It's us. As we finish up, I want to make this final point, which we'll draw on more, but I just want to at least briefly state it as we finish this morning. In addition to destroying and initiating the husband is one who perseveres. The godly husband devotes himself to loving his wife in the face of her weaknesses and failures. Christ's love for his church, get this, Christ's love for his church is unconditional love. It bears with weaknesses. It bears with sin. It perseveres. It keeps pressing forward no matter what our wives do. Christ pursued us in our sin, in order to save us from our sin. When Christ came for us, 
What did we look like? Terrible. We looked terrible when Christ came for us. What does it say in Romans 5, 6 to 8? For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You may say, okay, that's how the marriage started, but what about sustaining it? My wife's just out here somewhere. I mean, it's just, it's not working. What we read in Scripture is that now, even with those who are Christians, Jesus continues to love us in the face of our disobedience, our selfishness, our idolatrous living, our lack of trust, our straying away. No, we don't live as perfect Christians. Not a single one of us lives as a perfect Christian. And yet, Jesus bears with us. He perseveres. He endures with us. He molds His church. He shapes His church. He conforms it always into His image. He gives grace and wisdom. He, he takes bad and turns it into good. He's always working this wonderful grace in each of our lives and in every single local church and in the universal church. No matter how much we falter and fail, He remains our loving advocate. 1 John 2, 1. And our sympathizing high priest. Hebrews 4, 15. So as we close this morning, what does this say to husbands? I want to speak for a moment to the frustrated husband. Now, it, I could be wrong on this, but just in terms of experience, and even just having been a pastor here for a short time, normally it's wives who are frustrated. That's typically the case. Normally it's wives who are just like, my husband won't lead, my husband is controlling or domineering or oppressive. Uh, or he's indifferent and passive and lazy. I, I just, I, I'm losing my mind here. That's typically what you hear. But what if that's, what if that's the opposite this morning? You're a husband, and when you read Proverbs 31, you say in truth and without anger, that's not my wife. That's not my wife. That's just not. You see none of that in your wife, and as you listen to the last two sermons, you couldn't help but think, my wife will never follow my leadership. She will not submit to me. I don't know what to do. The answer for the husband is simple. We're not going to like it. It's perseverance. It's endurance. Colossians 3, 12 to 14, which is the context for the same teaching Paul gives in Colossians to wives and husbands, says this. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts. Listen to this. Kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. So husband, what do you do if your wife, she's not a godly wife? You've prayed about it, struggled through it, she's not. You operate first and foremost as one who is chosen, holy, and beloved. The love and happiness that you need doesn't come from your wife. Don't look for it there. Look for it in the Lord God who chose you, who set you apart, and who has put his love upon you and in you. That's where we focus. Being patient and bearing with your wife. And next week we'll talk a little bit about discipleship, what it looks like to bring your wife along. You know, as, as a leader in your home, what it looks like if your wife is, is erring and is out there and not living for the Lord, what it looks like to say, okay, I'm going to persevere. I'm going to endure all the way till the end, but I'm going to have to kind of strategize. How can I win my wife's heart? How can I get her back? How can I bring her along in godly 
living. So two verses as we close that I think will help husbands who are struggling in this way. First, 1 Corinthians 13, 7. Hear this. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Your relationship with your wife is not hopeless. Don't cast it to the wind as though it can never work. She's never going to come back. And the same is true for all wives in this room. After last week, you went home, you thought about things, whether you're a frustrated wife or a frustrated husband, know this, that there is hope in Christ. Trust Him and persevere and endure and look to Him for what you need. And then Romans 12, 12. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. No need to comment on that. It's self-explanatory. Let's pray. Our good Father, we thank you for marriage. We thank you for the redemptive relationship between Christ and his church that it, that it portrays. God, I pray for forgiveness of my own sins as a husband my own failures and my own lack of love in my heart and in my actions as a husband. I pray, Father God, that all of us as husbands today will turn to you for grace and to genuinely and truly repent. Today can be a new day by your grace, God. Would you show each husband in here today what it looks like to step out in faith and move forward? If all of the things in Hebrews 11 can be done by faith, the mouths of lions were shut. Nations overthrown and toppled by faith. If those things can be done by faith, certainly, Father, we know that you can change our hearts through faith. Would you be with frustrated wives? Would you be with frustrated husbands? Would you be glorified in the remainder of our service? In Jesus' name, amen. But ask that those who will be serving the Lord's Supper this morning go ahead and come forward. We are still meditating on this wonderful picture or copy or image, parable of Christ and his church, which reminds us of what Christ gave for his church. In his self-giving sacrifice, he gave his body and he gave his blood. He's the bread of life, and it's through his blood that all of our sins are washed away. And so uh, my prayer for us this morning as we partake of this, and we'll take it seriously, that we'll be grateful to the Lord for what he's done. I would just ask, if you're not a believer this morning, know this, that this is not just a ceremony that we do as a church. This is a very special time in which we confess our faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins and the life to come. And so if you're not a believer, please, uh, we ask that, you know, we welcome you today. We're glad you're here, but we just ask that you not participate in this.